Well, good morning. Can I give you a very warm welcome to our service this morning at Brighton Road Baptist Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online. I'm delighted that Ben Fisher is going to be sharing the service with me later on. We gather here in the presence of God and we seek the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I have one item of sad news to share with you. Many of you will remember Evelyn Terry, who was a member at Brighton Road for many years. She died on Monday in her care home with her sons and her grandsons with her. Can we just spend a moment in quiet, remembering Evelyn and commending her to God? We come together before God who consoles us in our distress. We come together before God who is our hiding place from troubles. We come together before God, whose love surrounds us. And we rejoice in the Lord, who is our comforter and our refuge. Let's stand and sing together, my Jesus, my Saviour.
seats. Psalm 32. A special psalm by David. O God, you bless everyone whose sins you forgive and wipe away. You bless them by saying, You told me your sins without trying to hide them, and now I forgive you. Before I confessed my sins, my bones felt limp and I groaned all day long. Night and day your hand weighed heavily on me and my strength was gone as in the summer heat. So I confessed my sins and told them all to you. I said, I'll tell the Lord each one of my sins. Then you forgave me and took away my guilt. So let's join together in the prayer of confession that's on the screen. God of mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you in our thinking, in our speaking, in our action and inaction, our words and our deeds. We haven't loved ourselves, our neighbours or you with our whole heart and mind and strength. In your mercy, forgive what we have been and redirect what we shall be, that we may live fully in your will and walk humbly in your ways to the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, someone, I don't know who it was, God knows who they were, wrote on this whiteboard, didn't wipe it off. Serene, you, you kindly said you'd come and give us a hand. Do you want to see if you can get any of this writing off? Give it a go. Oh, yeah, there we go. Keep going. It's kind of hard, isn't it? Okay, what about this stuff down here? These, this writing here. You see, not only did they write on the whiteboard and not wipe it off, they wrote on the whiteboard with the wrong kind of pen. It's pretty much indelible, this stuff. Sometimes we did stuff a long time ago that's written in our hearts, on our consciences, and we can't get rid of it. It's just there and it's messy and it's been there a long time. We don't know what to do with it. Sometimes it's there because not because of what we did, but because of what other people did to us. But you know what? I've got some good news. Don't, whoa, we're going to lose this. Because, and not necessarily many people know this, hand sanitizer is also really good for cleaning whiteboards. So, whoa, that went everywhere. Have a go now. Whoa, look at that. Even the wrong pen comes off. So what is it actually removes ancient stuff from our hearts and consciences going back years that we regret? How can we be clean again on the inside? And the answer is, it's the blood of Christ. That is God's moral detergent that cleanses our hearts. Do you want a bit more? Okay, you did Does she do this at home? Ah. There we go. Keep going. This is fantastic. You can come to my house anytime and do cleaning. It's the blood of Christ that cleanses our hearts and our consciences, makes us clean on the inside. Stuff we thought we could never get rid of. Stuff we thought was there to stay. Stuff that's upset us and made us sad and angry for years. Jesus is the one who can get rid of all that and make us clean and new on the inside. So we know that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Fantastic. You can sit down again now. <laughs> 
all the dirt transferred to the cloth because of the hand sanitizer, all our sin and guilt and shame and anger transferred to Jesus on the cross. That's the difference he makes. That's why we worship him as Saviour and as Lord. He makes us clean and new on the inside, different people. And we worship him for it. Let's sing together all my days. I will sing this song with gladness. we are as children young people go to brbk upstairs we pray for your blessing upon them and your blessing on those of us who stay here in jesus name amen if you're going god go with you and have a great time if you're staying you're stuck with me and with them our first reading today is taken from 2 corinthians 3 verse 4 to 6 Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What does that mean? St. Augustine put it accurately and bluntly. Without the help of the spirit of grace who gives life, the teaching of the Ten Commandments is the letter that strikes us dead. In the absence of the newness of the spirit, the ancient letter of God's commandments cannot liberate us from sin. It can only make us guilty by exposing our failure. The commandment says, this is how you need to live. This is the person you need to be. You can't manage that. Well, so much the worse for you then. The commandment without the Spirit condemns us to death. 
life only comes to us by the Spirit of God. So what do we do with the commandments then? Do we jettison them because they're not life-giving? I remember being in a real quandary, wondering what to say to a woman who'd been told by her vicar it was okay for her to leave her husband for somebody else because her marriage had not been life-giving and the new relationship was. It seemed to me then that it still does, that the, the prohibition of adultery doesn't look like an optional extra to be set aside if it, if it kind of suits us. In fact, Jesus intensifies it by saying, if we're attracted to somebody else's wife or husband and we indulge that desire, then we're already committing adultery in our hearts. The thought is father to the deed. Does that mean then that we're all damned before we even start? Because God demands an unattainable standard of perfection from us? I'm also uncomfortable with the kind of spirituality which says the whole purpose of the law is just to bring us into a state of condemnation. So we despair of ever being good enough and we're forced to turn to Christ for the grace we need. Precisely on account of this negative teaching that the church has established the firm and undesirable reputation in some quarters of just making people feel guilty. Make no mistake, the heart of the Spirit of God is to impart life to us. And if the Spirit inspired the words of the commandments, as he surely did, then the Spirit's intention must have been somehow to bring us life, through those commandments, even if they seem to stand over against us. So the commandments don't just pass a death sentence upon us, nor are we free simply to ignore them. The question is, how do we find life through these words? In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul refers to himself as the minister of a new covenant, the terms of which are not written on tablets of stone, but inscribed by the Spirit of God on the human heart. And he's clearly referring here to Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant where God promises that he will write his law on our hearts. And what difference does that make? It means that the prohibitions of the law don't stand over against us anymore. They are internalised within us by the Spirit of Christ who gives us both the desire and the capacity to do what God wants. Augustine says again, it's therefore apparent what difference there is between the old covenant and the new, that in the former the law is written on tables, while in the latter on hearts, so that what in the one alarms from without, in the other delights from within. In the former one becomes a transgressor through the letter that kills, in the other a lover through the life-giving spirit. You all know the picture of the three wise monkeys. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. The Spirit of Christ turns those negative prohibitions into positive decisions. Today I will look and see, look for and see what is good. Today I will listen for and hear what is good. I will speak what is good. The negative is turned into positive. Do not murder is interpreted by the Spirit as love, your enemy. It's the Spirit who helps us keep the commandment, do not commit adultery, by instilling a deep-seated loving commitment to a husband or wife. The Spirit makes us honest that we don't need to steal or lie. The Spirit gives us the capacity to enjoy what little we may have, so that we're not bothered about the plenty that others seem to have at their disposal. Whereas the law says, thou shalt not and thou canst not, the Spirit simply says, you can. You can. And sometimes that involves a kind of reinterpretation of the letter of the commandment. Paul was bold enough to say, actually, all of the commandments are fulfilled if we just love our neighbours as ourselves. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, he says. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law distills it down into one commandment, actually, which is simple to understand, albeit, admittedly, difficult to do. But the Spirit draws that love out from within us. Luke tells us the story of a lawyer who got hung up on the question, OK, I'm supposed to love my neighbour as myself. Who is my neighbour then? Who am I supposed to love like that? 
And Jesus shamed his legal nitpicking by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, a man whom the lawyer certainly would not have regarded as a neighbour, but who just automatically helps the injured stranger by the side of the road and saves his life. We're called to live the commandments, not debate them. Get your motives right, and the lifestyle will follow. We all know we don't have to read a lot of the Bible before we run across stuff which is disturbing and challenging. Such times it's right to pause and pray, Lord, what on earth is this doing here? How can this commandment, this passage, become life-giving by your spirit? How, How do I read and understand it? And at moments like that, we need the light of the new covenant life-giving spirit to shine in our hearts as we read the scriptures. Because the letter without the spirit leaves us stone dead. That means it's never enough to say, well, we know what the Bible says about this particular issue, because that's how it's always been understood. (laughs) The spirit of God has the authority and the freedom to open up more truth and light from God's holy word. And we need to be open to that. So we don't just read the scriptures the way we've always read them, accepting what our tradition tells us that they should mean. We read them prayerfully, asking God to give us the understanding that comes from the Spirit because God wants to align your experience with what his word says. And that means praying either that he would bring your experience into line with Scripture or that he would show you how to interpret Scripture so that it comes into line with and makes sense of your experience. The Scriptures have authority because and in as much as they reveal Christ to you as Saviour and as Lord. He's the one who transforms our minds by his Spirit. And it's his Spirit who guides us into all understanding. So our prayer, as we open our Bibles, and I hope you do open your Bibles from time to time, our prayer as we open our Bibles always needs to be Spirit of God, through this word, would you show me Jesus? Would you make Jesus known to me and lead me into all truth? Amen. We're going to sing a song which I gather is new to you, so apologies for that. Spirit of God, show me Jesus. We're going to listen to it. And then, uh, staying seated, we're going to sing it quietly and reflectively. Spirit of God, show us Jesus. We live in a dark and violent world where so often we look for your presence and find it hard to see it. At such times, show us Jesus, we pray. Righteous God, for the people and land of Ukraine, 
one year into war. Bring deliverance. Bring healing. Bring peace. May those who are staying in this country be able to return home in safety and rebuild their lives and their land. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Tender God, your love for us is unconditional. It's wider and deeper and truer than we can ever fully know. For those of us who find it hard to accept ourselves, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Compassionate God, some of us feel stretched and tired. Our lives are strained and stressed beyond measure. Minister your grace and peace and love to us, we pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Merciful God, for those of us who feel like we're holding on to life by our fingertips, or our grip upon life is fragile, would you hold on to us? Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Healing God, for those of us whose illness makes us vulnerable or leaves us isolated, may we know the peace of your presence. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And loving God, for those of us whose journey is chaotic or we find ourselves in turmoil, journey with us. Show us the next step. Bring us to where you want us to be. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And caring God, for those of us whose calling is to journey with and care for others, give us the reserves of patience and love and grace and understanding that we need. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For we ask all these prayers for ourselves and others in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We continue reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if What was fading away came with glory. How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Amen. We're going to sing together from the breaking of the dawn.
Ben, can I pray for you as you come and give God's word to us? Father, I pray for Ben and pray that the spirit who inspired the words that Paul wrote and who led Paul as he prepared would speak to us through him now. May your spirit rest upon him. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, In preparation for this message, I spent a lot of time reflecting on these verses. I spent a lot of time trying to find and define various different words which Paul uses to mean various different things, but I think that in trying to unpick the meaning that was hidden under the surface, I had missed the bigger meaning. I'd forgotten about what had initially struck me when I first read these verses. The intricacy and detail in Paul's message is interesting, and I will unpick a small amount of it, but what I really want to try and do is express the beauty of the message that initially struck me, the wider context of what Paul is describing. What is being described here is not just a few ways in which the old covenant was good and the new covenant is better. It's the tension between God's desire to reveal to us his glory and our inability to gaze upon it. God did not design humans to live apart from his presence. His design, as shown in the Garden of Eden, was for creator and creation to live together, with us dwelling constantly in his glory and presence. However, when sin entered into this perfect unity, it separated us from God's presence. It made us unclean and therefore unable to look upon the fullness of God's glory. But this picture of unity and closeness with his creation was something that God, due to his unconditional love for us, was not willing to lose. This then is what the covenants are all about. They're the first two steps on God's mission to rescue us from our own sinfulness and allow us back into unity with him. This is what Paul is describing here. He is describing the first two steps in a plan. The first step that did a little and the second that did a lot more. The first which was temporary and the second which was permanent. The first revealed the sinfulness and the second overcame it. The first brought condemnation and the second brought righteousness. Paul, more than most, was someone who was able to fully appreciate both the beauty of the Old Covenant as well as the beauty of the New Covenant. He was someone who had lived under both covenants and experienced the glory made available through both covenants firsthand. This was why he was able to describe them so well. As a devout Jew, Paul would have spent most of his life following the Old Covenant. In Philippians 3 verse 6, he describes that in regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he was persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, he was faultless. He had experienced, he had experience with the glory that was made available through the old covenant, through the animal sacrifice, and through the strict adherence to the law. His experience of both covenants is what makes his perspective so valuable. He shows that even as someone who was as faultless according to the law as it was possible to be, Paul was still amazed by the level of glory offered by the new covenant. On his way to Damascus, Paul had an encounter. He sees the glory of God firsthand, visible as a light from heaven. He encounters Jesus and is brought into the new covenant. This experience changed him radically. Paul went from being a Pharisee, a man bound by the law and living under the old covenant, to a man set free from the condemnation of the law. And brought into the righteousness of the old covenant, his encounter brought him... Oh, I've written that bit twice, it's all right. Um, And then when he came into the new covenant, he discovered very quickly that whatever glory he had already experienced through the old covenant was now completely dwarfed by the sheer amount of glory that he could experience now through the new covenant. Although something that is important to note here is that although Paul's comparison could be misunderstood as being critical of the Old Covenant, he is by no means diminishing its importance or its significance, nor the glory that is made available through it. He is not saying that the Old Covenant was not glorious, he is just saying that what was once glorious through the Old Covenant has been surpassed so radically by the glory of the New Covenant that in comparison it may seem to be barely glorious. One way of thinking about this is as imagining them as lights. After the fall, all of humanity is plunged into darkness. We have no way to see where we're going or what we need to do. Through the Old Covenant, we were given a light. Like a candle, the Old Covenant provided a little bit of light. A light in complete darkness, even a dim one, is amazing. But when a greater light comes along, the candle becomes almost useless. No one in their right mind would be using a candle to see where they were going during the day. 
This is what happened to the old covenant when the new covenant was established. The new covenant was so much more glorious than the old covenant that now trying to seek glory through the old covenant was completely futile. Through his unique perspective, Paul is able to point out to us a few specific areas in which the new covenant surpasses the glory of the old covenant. Demonstrating to us the surpassing glory of the old covenant, demonstrating to us the surpassing glory that has been offered to us in the new covenant, and asking us to consider the, the limitations of the old covenant, and then ask ourselves if that which was limited came with glory, how much more glorious is that which does not share the same limitations? A key thing that Paul wants to draw our attention to is the transient nature of the old covenant. This is something that he references both in relation to the covenant in itself and into the access into the God's glory that it brings us. The old covenant itself was only ever a temporary fix to a more permanent problem. In Exodus 19:5-6, God explains the nature of the old covenant to the Israelites, saying, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then... Out of all nations you will be my treasured possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is interesting because of the conditionality in this verse. The if. God says to the Israelites that if they are able to obey his covenant fully, then they will be made to him a kingdom of priests. Priests here being the designation of people who have been made clean and are therefore able to come into the presence of God. This is what the Old Covenant is built upon. It's human works in return for a state of temporary righteousness. And only then, in that state of temporary righteousness, is one able to enter into the temple and see God's presence. The conditionality of the law means that any glory that can be found through the law is transient. To come into the presence of God under the Old Covenant required weeks of strict adherence to the law and animal sacrifice to become spiritually clean, it was only then that one was able to enter into the temple space and see the glory of God. Righteousness in the law is very difficult to get and also very easy to lose. This state of righteousness according to the law was especially hard to obtain due to the limitations of the flesh, something which Paul touches on on, in Romans 8 verse 3 when he says that that what the law was powerless to do, because it was limited by the flesh, God has done by sending his own son, Christ Jesus. This is where the permanence of the new covenant comes in. Even though the old covenant was transient, even though it only offered limited and brief access to God's glory, it still had glory. Glory so raw and so powerful that even after Moses had left God's presence and returned from the mountain, his face was glowing so brightly with the glory that the Israelites could not even look upon it. So even second-hand and fading glory is so glorious that the Israelites cannot look upon it. How much more glorious is the permanent and everlasting glory? Glory not limited by our own flesh, but given freely to us through God's abundant love and the sacrifice of his own son. Or as Paul puts it, and if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Additionally, the old covenant only brought condemnation because before it came there was no condemnation. Before the Old Covenant, there was only confusion. The Israelites could not even strive for righteousness because they did not even know what righteousness would look like. The law of the Old Covenant then brought condemnation only because you could no longer use the excuse of not knowing. When there is no law to break, you cannot break the law, and therefore you cannot be condemned for breaking the law. The Old Covenant gave the Israelites a rule book. It gave them the tools to identify the sin but it did not give them the tools to overcome it. But in the new covenant, the goalposts have been changed. In sending Christ Jesus, God recognised that we as humans could not and would never be able to achieve righteousness through our own works. Only through the spirit and the abundant sacrifice of Jesus dying on the cross could we be, in our fallen nature and sin, made righteous. And only now, now that we have been made righteous before God, and we, can we come into God's presence? Only now that we have been fully set free and fully forgiven of our sins, can we fully encounter God's presence? 
Why then, now that we have been fully set free and been allowed into God's glory, why do we not always come into God's glory? Why do we not then, now, even though we are able to, enter into God's glorious presence? God's glory is still available. Its power and majesty remain unchanged. God's glory is able to heal. It's able to set us free. It's still able to radically deliver us and change us in ways that we may not be able to imagine. God has given us, through Jesus, the gift of being able to come into his presence abundantly. And unlike those living under the law, we're not limited by our flesh. No longer do we need to maintain our righteousness before God through any strength of our own. We have been set free and can come freely and abundantly into God's presence. When we do, we are still able to see deliverance, to see healing, to see revival, to see hearts, minds and lives changed radically by the glory of God. But although God is offering us his abundant glory, we will only receive what we ask for. We still have to come into the presence to be able to experience the presence. We still have to be praying and asking to receive what we're praying and asking for. As it says in Matthew 7 verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So what is it that's stopping us from asking to experience and therefore seeing the glory of God working in our life? What hesitations do we have that prevent us from seeking and therefore receiving God's glory? I think there are two main hesitations that we may have. Either we're already content with the glory that we have already seen, or we're worried that what might happen if we were to see the fullness of God's glory. As Christians, I'm sure that many of us will, see, will have seen glimpses of God's glory. And I think that it's very easy to see, to see glory and then stop before we find the surpassing glory that is made available through the new covenant. It's easy, when confronted with the fullness of God's glory, to try and keep it in a bite-sized amount, an amount that maybe is more easily managed or maybe less confronting. God's glory is powerful. It can change us and deliver us radically, sometimes in ways that we may not have expected. And that uncertainty can be intimidating, especially if we're living in sin or as I think is often more common within the church, if we're happy with where we are already. Maybe because we are happy with the place that we are in the moment and we are worried that if we were to encounter the fullness of God's glory, which he has made available to us, something might be, as things often are when they're confronted with the fullness of God's glory, changed in an unexpected way. And change is something that we, as humans, are often wary of. But we can be encouraged by this. God is a loving and compassionate father. He is a father of abundant love and has nothing but good gifts for us. Matthew 7 verse 10 to 11 says this. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So I encourage you. Don't just seek a little bit of God's glory, but seek it in abundance. Pray for that change. Pray for that deliverance. Pray for the things that you will likely see when we encounter the surpassing glory that has been made available to us in abundance through the new covenant. Because whatever change comes, it will be positive. God is a father who only gives good gifts. So whatever, good, whatever gifts you receive will be good. Ben, thank you for sharing that with us. Let's spend a moment in quiet. Lord, you are a glorious God. Thank you that we don't need to hide from your glory. You don't want us to hide from your glory. Open our eyes. Give us confidence and trust in you. 
And Lord, we invite the fullness of your glory to transform us. To change us from who we are now to who you want us to be. In Jesus' name. Amen. We sing together, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood.
Let's share together in the words of the grace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.